Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manas Chavla, and the guest joining me today has a background that perhaps really is the personification of this podcast. He's previously worked as the vice president for Citibank, as the deputy minister for defense in Lithuania, and is now the NATO assistant secretary general for executive management. Joining me from Brussels is Gradrima Siglinskas. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. Uh, Manas, great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so, I mean, I really think, you know, we couldn't be having this conversation at a better time because we're just coming off the heels of uh, a big NATO summit in Madrid. Uh, and I think that's a great sort of place to start a discussion because these sort of, you know, big international gatherings, uh, you know, to the average Joe, they can often come across as a very dry, formulaic affair with, you know, the big issues resolved very incrementally, uh, sometimes, frankly, not at all. But this year it was obviously very different, uh, you know, after Russia set off the largest land war in Europe in decades. And uh, because of that, NATO allies pledged to send more weapons to Ukraine, but it also agreed to send uh, a thousand more troops to Eastern Europe to, to add two new members, uh, Sweden and Finland, that for the first time uh, characterized China as a strategic challenge. Now, there's a lot going on there uh, that I want to get to you and I want to get to piece by piece. Uh, but first, I just love to get, you know, your firsthand bird's eye view of the situation. I mean, I understand you were on the ground in Madrid, helping much of this come to fruition. What was the atmosphere of the conference like and sort of how was it different from previous years? Uh, well, thank you for this uh, really good opening question. I think, uh, I think in one word, if I were to describe the, the overall environment at, in Madrid at the, at the premises of the, of the summit is really the unity. And although when we were going into the summit week prior or even several days prior, there was a lot of questions, are we going to make it on certain decisions and are, will allies agree on, on a final sort of a strategic concept a, a draft or, you know, on Finland, Sweden, there was obvious sort of tension there. Is it going to happen? I think uh, once you're on the ground, once those two days, two day event has started, um, Yes, there was some still wrangling. I think uh, there's, I think there's been a really good display by the Secretary General of the leadership in run in in helping manage the Finland, Sweden, uh, Turkey era sort of uh, interactions and conversations. And with that, I think when you're in a room, you see the unity is there on display. When we walk out of the room into the public uh, space where the interviews are being uh, done and where the press conference are being being run and the question Q and A going back and forth you see that the unity is there. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you look back now, like, has this summit been uh, is transformational, historic? Of course, because we love to say that it's historic because we've all been there. So it's all, yeah, we'd love to be in the historic summits. We'd love to be at those legendary summits. But I think just when we look at the, the number of things that were achieved and agreed, and, and as I always say, it's important to, to note that agreement at NATO is at 30. It's always at a consensus level. So it means all 30 nations agreed on all these things. So yes, we have an accession of Finland, Sweden, a historic event, uh, which has shown that NATO is growing, that other nations want to become part of us, of our group, of our collective, uh, part of the collective defense uh, alliance. And it's, I think it boosts confidence. I think strengthens alliance. It strengthens both the Sweden and Finland, but also strengthens the Eastern part directly. And overall, I think alliance as a whole, and it's, uh, you know, 
the deal has a, that has been achieved with uh, with the Tur um, Turkey and Swedish and Finnish presidents is is really historic. I think the strategic concept, which was uh, uh, long in the making, uh, the previous one was from 2010, so 12 years ago. Um, uh, initially, when we were, of course, when we were planning for the summit, uh, I would say over a year ago when the planning has started, I think strategic concept was supposed to be the, the main sort of uh, attraction of the, of the summit, the main deliverable of the summit. Of course, Russia's violent aggression against Ukraine has changed everything. A lot of other things had to be decided, and I think that's where we succeeded of really pivoting slightly, well, not slightly, quite a bit, but still maintaining that strategic concept is there. And strategic concept is quite a unique document um, because it, it's, it's quite dram well, it's dramatically different from, from 2010 document by you know, really highlighting that geostrategic competition is here, is here and we have a, uh, the, the Euro-Atlantic era is not at peace as it was in 2010. We saw, we are, we see a war in the in Eastern part of the, of a, just outside the, the Alliance borders. Uh, China's rise has been mentioned as a strategic competition is here. Um, of course, uh, the, the climate change discussions, uh, many other sort of transnational threats that are rising that demand transnational, transnational solutions. So it's, uh, again, it's a big thing. Now, uh, another sort of transformational aspect, of course, is the, is the how, what do we do about Ukraine? Uh, how, how can we help Ukraine win? And here we, of course, uh, allies have agreed to a comprehensive assistance package, which includes um, a lot of different things to help on cyber cyber defense, to help on on modernizing the equipment, food and food and, uh, and water, and many other sort of logistical smaller style of elements that were um, that were you know that were agreed. Now again, going back to the main message, I think what's most important is that transatlantic unity is there. Um, the, the presidents were in in one in one voice. Um, you know. And I think that's that's really the, why it's been a really a historic two-day summit uh, for the alliance. You know, like you said, the addition of these countries is, is a really big deal, and not least because these sort of Baltic states have had a very long uh, history of neutrality. Uh, and you know, there's no doubt that you know Sweden and Finland can make very real material contributions to NATO. Of course, you know Finland maintains an army uh, with very substantial reserves, and Sweden has strong air and naval forces, particularly submarine forces. And that's not to mention, uh, you know, their very geostrategic position in the sort of current uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, but one might argue that the biggest advantage of their admission to NATO uh, aren't these material things. It's actually more so the political. Uh, dimension of it, you know, because if Putin was betting on NATO fragmenting as a result of the Russian invasion, he clearly couldn't have been more wrong because now not only is NATO more cohesive and unified uh, than ever before, its scope is actually much larger. So I do definitely want to ask you, you know, would you say the sort of symbolic value of Sweden and Finland's accession to NATO is of greater significance than its military or sort of practical implications? Uh, well, I think it's, it's, I think it's obvious that it's both. You know, it's hard to to judge. You know, the sim symbolism of it. I think it has shown that, and I think I hope that has shown to to President Putin also that you no, know, once you commit aggression in Europe, there's a response. This response has been, you know, has been triggered by uh, by by Putin himself by by Russian Russian aggression. This is this is was not asked for. And of course, the nations like Sweden and Finland, they decided, you know, we need to make sure that 
you know, we, we, we end, we sort of end that formal neutrality um, uh, position that, that was there for, for many, many years or, or decades even. Now, I think in this world, and this is, I think is a bigger narrative is that if we, if we are in a geostrategic competition world and the Russia's war against Ukraine is just one expression of that. There's many other things happening around the world. There's the rise of China. There's other, you know, if we can say democracies versus autocracies, perhaps uh, that's the sort of battle that's looming here. I think in this battle, um, I would argue that neutrality is no longer an option. Now, can you be neutral in this world? I think some would argue, yes, Sweden was never part of, a, Sweden and Finland were never part of NATO. But I think from values perspective, they were always part of our, our mm. values-based community. They're part of European Union. They're strong, democ strong established democracies with, um, you know, with a long track record of, of, of great things that make these countries democracies and free and prosperous countries. Um, they were never really neutral. But now, of course, this, this has shifted that, you know, symbolically, yes, the, the club of democracies, if you say, club of democracy that we defend our freedom, we preserve peace as a as alliance has has been growing. So it's it's absolutely symbolically, it's a huge thing. Now, militarily, as you correctly pointed out, I think geostrategic sorry, geostrategic position of these countries is uh, is is uh, of huge importance. Now, Finland has a border that equals the previous border of all NATO countries to Russia. So it's a huge. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's an incredible addition from strategic uh, geostrategic and uh, kind of geopositioning perspective that that these guys that these countries uh, bring. I mean, Baltic Sea. Well, that's where the Baltic Russian Baltic fleet is. Now we, the whole Baltic Sea is is covered with uh, with NATO NATO country member states. So it's um, I think it's it's in, at all, in all respects in all from all angles you, we, we look at this this is uh, this is an incredible strengthening of the alliance strengthening incredible strengthening of our of our broader community of democracies and makes it all makes us all safer. Mm. And sort of as part of that you know discussion about you know the broader community of democracies and you mentioned the sort of dichotomy uh, kind of emerging as a key theme the the distinction between democracies and autocracies. Um, I want to change your focus a little bit and talk about Asia, uh, because at least until the start of this year, that was the biggest theme in all the foreign policy circles in the West. You know, in the UK, it seems like people just couldn't get enough of pondering and theorizing about this sort of post-Brexit Indo-Pacific tilt. Uh, in the US, you know, America made clear the importance of Asia by formalizing, you know, the quad of quadrilateral security dialogue. So it's only natural that, you know, even NATO, especially given its ever increasing scope, looks to Asia, uh, looks to its partners, uh, you know, like Australia, New Zealand, Japan and South Korea, you know, might come to mind. Um, and I'm wondering, what do you think NATO can do to sort of tangibly strengthen these partnerships? And perhaps, you know, even more importantly, in the meantime, what lessons can NATO learn from these partners? Um, I mean, I think this is again another absolutely relevant uh, question. Uh, I think we we see that the world is, although you know, there, there's some would argue that uh, there's a deglobalization in play now in certain respects. Yet on the other on the other hand, we understand there's a lot of these issues, both on security and, but also in economy and commerce and trade are very multinational. Climate change is is just a you know, it's a big multinational issue that needs to be done uh, solved multinationally. Now, speaking of a uh, NATO and and Asia Asia Pacific partners. Now we have a uh, four formal partners 
of, of NATO in, in, in a broader Asia Pacific and, and it's South Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand. I know Australia, New Zealand may not always think of themselves as Asia, Asia Pacific, but again, this is that part of the world again, looking from our, from our European corner. Um, now, what we have done, we understand that these are values-based partners. We've had these, this partnership for, for a long time. The, the commitment that all the leaders of, of NATO, NATO 30, the 30 allied leaders, as well as the four APAC leaders who, who, who actually were at the Madrid summit, agreed to strengthen the relationship. Now, I think we got to start somewhere. It's, it's, it's not about a full-fledged relationship. So there are certain elements like cyber defense, like um, new technologies, maritime security, uh, climate change, encountering disinformation. All of those areas have been are covered in the, in the agreement that you know we need to strengthen that uh, this partnership. Now, I think uh, you know one important thing here to note is that as NATO adapts to to the so-called 2030, so we look we look two years ago, we looked 10 years ahead, and we have a, essentially a vision that that came from Secretary General and agreed, of course, by the by all 30 allies, is that NATO at 2030 needs to be Militarily stronger, politically more united, and third, that's a really important global aspect: is to operate or approach things with a to work with a global approach. Meaning that we need to take into account what's happening in the world. Of course, we will always remain a regional a region. Of course, a big, big, <laughs> it's a big region. It's the Euro Atlantic area, Canada, U.S., and and essentially whole of Europe. This is this is what we are, but. I think we cannot escape, uh, you know, from what is happening in the world. Uh, China's rise, both economic and the, their military intentions, and, and their recent sort of, uh, you know, steps in, in strengthening the military with very little transparency, has showed are concerning. Um, that's why these allies are important. You mentioned Quad. Quad is an important partnership. Now, it's we don't have a partnership with Quad with with NATO, but we do have a NATO partnership with other APAC leaders. I think AUKUS deal on a more defense industry side has been, you know, hailed as a as another, you know, um, pivot, I would say, to, to, to Asia. NATO will, I think we need, the key here is to look at the values aligned partners and continue to build these relationships more and more. And so, you know, the way NATO addressed that in the summit, uh, like you just mentioned, was labeling China as a strategic challenger. And you know, following on from what you just said, it's clear that in containing that threat, it can't you know simply project a sort of nebulous power uh, from the confines of Brussels. It needs to cooperate with allies in Asia and the Indo-Pacific. And you know, some might say a big part of that equation is India. In fact, the NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg was in New Delhi last year, speaking directly to the need for you know NATO to cooperate with India on China. Uh, but at the same time, there's you know plenty that. Uh, you know, NATO and NATO countries and India disagree on. And perhaps the biggest one is its support uh, for NATO on Ukraine, which sort of one might characterize as either lukewarm at best or, you know, neutral at worst. Uh, and that might be a very charitable uh, characterization of it. Um, but, you know, even from an Indian perspective, perhaps a substantial barrier to cooperation with NATO is the status of Pakistan. Uh, as a partner country. So clearly there's plenty of thorny issues there. I guess my natural question to you is how can NATO successfully go about getting India's support in contending with China, the so-called sort of next big challenge, without having to compromise on any of you know the many other things that they disagree on? Uh, it's, a, it's a tough question, uh, Amanas. And now I think, 
I, I gotta say this. India, of course, is a big, is, well, they, some say it's the biggest democracy, or the biggest democracy in the world is, uh, has its own strategic sort of positioning, and it has its own, as you mentioned, there's a relationship with Pakistan, there's, of course, there's a border with China, there's, there's many other probably, you know, some, in, 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 it's a huge country with, it, with a lot of internal sort of, uh, not, I wouldn't say issues, but more in, is, interest, interesting challenges that the country uh, has, uh, but it's up to India, I think, to decide where it stands. Now, I think, um, you know, from, from our perspective, we would have, I would say, I would have personally would have expected, you know, India to be, to be on very clearly on, on sort of a Ukraine side, but I understand also they need to balance, they need to balance from their strategic perspective, what, what, um, you know, what, what, um, what sort of response they, it, it would come. Now, I think, you know, what's important is for us, whether it's NATO, or America, of course, U.S. leadership here is essential. You know, we continue working with with, with uh, India and see what are the sort of intersecting areas that that could be interesting to work in. Now, I mentioned this is something that we do with the, our APAC partners. So it's a it's collaboration on on cyber defense, new technologies, and and maritime security. A lot of those aspects potentially, I think, could be interesting also to work for for with India. I think India would could benefit. NATO would benefit as well. Again, I think we need to understand as as the alliance, although again, as I said, focused on Euro Atlantic area, what's what are, so what are the challenges that India is facing, and uh, and of course, I think the Quad mechanism. Again, I'm not not an expert in that, but the, the Quad, I think, is demonstrating that India is is part of that that part of a, of a, of a, of the equation, part of democracies, and I think that's that's the basis. Start with that very very basic premise that are you a democracy are you a free country if yes that's very i think at the end of the day you arrive at a, at a i hope you arrive at a, at a answer that you know where, where you need to stand neutrality again as i said in a previous question i think neutrality is no longer an option for bigger countries they may it may arrive there later because you just have a lot more power a lot more tools to to to, to mitigate these various risks but uh i think um yeah, it's uh, it comes down to leadership and and willingness to work together, and which I think you know I hope this 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 can be done. Mm -hmm. And you know, so far we've discussed sort of this broadening of NATO scope in a very kind of geographic way. Uh, I think in the Madrid summit we also saw this happen in, in a bit of a thematic way. Uh, you know, we saw Spain urging member states to pay more attention to security concerns on uh, NATO's southern flank. Uh, such as illegal immigration and violence, sort of Islamist movements in the Sahel region, as well as Russia's growing mercenary activity in Africa. Uh, and I think it's particularly sort of significant that they bring that up, um, despite the very natural proclivity to talk only about all things Ukraine, of course. And so, you know, raising these issues attaches, you know, great importance to these sort of distinctly non-military threats, such as, you know, quote unquote, the political use of energy resources and illegal immigration in Africa is one of the things that I saw in the document. Um, and so this broadening of scope to include these sort of uh, almost, you know, political objectives, these non-military objectives, how capable do you think NATO is of managing these threats, given that, you know, it's very much been a military alliance uh, that's kind of undergoing its evolution right now? Yeah, I think uh, it's, again, it's a, it's a great question. I think first thing to note, I think we have to understand that the whole concept of security, what security means, I think historically, or at least in, our, in some of our minds and, and you know, as students of international relations and political science, we always think security is a sort of something military, something law enforcement, something with the sort of kinetic power involved in, 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 in what security means. 
I think the security concept is changing dramatically and it's changing by really growing and expanding uh, into areas that were not deemed to be security sensitive before. Um, you know, obviously obvious things are like cybersecurity. This is this is an essential, this is actually a domain that, that NATO is working, not just NATO, I mean, different allies, militaries are working. Cyber is now a very important, you know, thing. Disinformation, I think many militaries, uh, I know from my time in, as a deputy defense minister in Lithuania, we, you know, defense uh, disinformation campaigns are essential elements of, of, um, of security. You can really destabilize a society if you, you know, uh, you know, swamp it with uh, with the disinformation and sort of fake news that are obviously fake, but also could be quite damaging to the societal societal sort of um, fabric. And it, and it does create vulnerabilities. It does create insecurity issues, and and there's much more. Now we've seen uh, we've seen even in Eastern Europe where Belarus was using the the refugees, sort of bringing refugees from from the Middle East and kind of channeling them to, into Europe. And really creating this bottlenecks and really doing inhumane human rights abuses, essentially, which creates issues within their society, but also creates issues for for, for broader Europe. I think in sub-Saharan Africa, and you, you mentioned, you know, the, what Spain has brought the, we call it the 360 approach. That we need to approach threats, and through the 360 approach, meaning yes, there's an eastern flank. Very very clearly, we have a Russia as an aggressor there. Uh, we have Belarus that's really aligning with Russia. But in the South, you know, that instability in the South in, um, is also causing through, through, through migration, through some spread of potentially terrorist activities. It's a, it's a significant, um, you know, it's a significant, uh, you know, positioning that, that we need to address. Now, your question is, can NATO be really be effective in these, in these matters, especially because these are more softer, I would say, um, softer elements of, of power? Um, I think, uh, yes, we need to show leadership. We need to increase the support of, to the partners in terms of capability building, institutional building. And, and there, I think there's, we're not alone. Of course, there are the UN, uh, there are EU, um, the European Union as, as a participant and with their operations, with their sort of capacity building and institution building uh, elements. So it's, uh, again, I think it, we come down, we come back to the same uh, question of, you know, that security is so such a wide concept now, um, and you know that social stability within a small country somewhere out, you know, far away from NATO can actually cause instability in, in, in that sort of it can it can unravel into something much bigger. And that's you know this is something where we need to be cautious and we need to be aware and we need to be monitoring. We need to be somehow supporting them, uh, supporting these countries. You know. So, so there. So we mitigate those risks at, at the very beginning of that. So again, it's a very complex issue. It's uh, it's not as straightforward. And, and you're right. Whereas a traditionally military alliance, we're I think we're very good at generating a lot of military forces. This is a more softer component. It requires a different kind of skill set. I think it'll, it requires collaboration with other institutions. So, but you know, there's we, we have to be everywhere. It's it's not either or. It's really we have to be and there as well, so. Mm. And one of the things that really struck me when you were saying that is sort of the, the you know, pattern of examples you gave, things like cybersecurity, things like uh, disinformation as sort of new security challenges. I think one of the things that might make them you know, way more complex than the previous issues that we've dealt with 
uh, is how kind of faceless they are. You know, there's there's not often one actor, one threat, one entity behind it that you can target uh, and sort of, you know, rally sort of the flag behind. Uh, and I think that's particularly the case if, you know, you sort of involve climate security, the broader definition of security is, uh, is there's no one, uh, you know, sort of entity that needs to be punished. It's very much a sort of, you know, public action problem, a sort of, a, you know, a commons yeah. problem that needs to be solved together, which, you know, necessarily requires looking at both political and military dimensions uh, to security. So um, very cool. But I, I, you know, I want to zoom out a little bit and, and, uh, uh, you know, you obviously have sort of approached uh, your career at NATO from, you know, a vast different uh, array of what some might call, you know, separate careers. Uh, we were just talking before the podcast began about connecting the dots between these. Uh, and uh, so, 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 so you've been, uh, you've had a career in banking, you've had a career in the Lithuanian Defense Forces, uh, and now with NATO. And I'm particularly keen to sort of hear how those, you know, different sort of perhaps past lives have influenced your current role. Uh, if at all. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, it's fascinating. I love talking about, I love thinking about it just simply because it's, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it is, it is important. And I, and I just want to say, I think it's the more diverse careers you have, at least for me, I think the more interesting it is to, to live those lives and to live those careers and to pursue those careers. Now, it's, it's a very different from somebody, you know, it, I'm, you know, I have, for example, I have classmates from high school who knew from the very beginning they wanted to be doctors, and they are doctors, and they're doing great out there with it. So that's probably it's probably different people. It's 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 not for everyone's uh, taste to to go around and, and do different careers. But I think uh, what I was always sort of fascinated and was looking for is really how do I how do I make impact and also, the second, and, and I, I want to I make impact by doing some great things for, for the world, for my country first, and then for, for, for the organization that I work with. And, and I think, um, uh, you know, and he correctly pointed out, so I had a career, like a, broadly speak, when I look back, a nine-year nine year career, so in the military, through military academy and service in the, in the, in the, in the armed forces. And I had a nine-year stint in, in, in finance or international banking with a business school and, and city group uh, tenure. And, and now I'm sort of, then I started this uh, five years ago or so, it became a, essentially being a leadership, political leadership with leading organizations. And now I'm in a leadership role at NATO. And all of these areas are, all of these sort of uh, uh, phases in my life and my career are very important. They bring different understanding of things. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's, it's all about that impact what 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 do you learn what do you learn in each role and i think in each role it's, it's very different but as i look forward into the, in the future and i think it's important to look into the future for all of us like how do i connect all those parts how to mold a role the next role that i hope can be molded from all these elements that i've done you know by using the you know the network the the knowledge the, the experiences and and i think uh, you know one 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 important thing is that it's good to work, I, I know this at least, it's good to work for established organizations, at least for some time. You understand how these things are, how these things are run. You're, you know, you, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, that city group is a 250,000 uh, people enterprise. It's, uh, you know, somebody has built this organization. Of course, it's sort of, it's, 
it took time to, for them to develop. But when you're part of that, it's uh, you got to appreciate that this is it's, it's a complex project. This is when you're starting in a small project, you have your own London political, right? You start with very small. It's um, but I think I thought the, the, that experience in a big organization gives gives you flavor of how things work because this Citigroup is not unlike the government, which is also a large large you know organization, or and not unlike NATO as well. It's you know once you reach 100 people, you suddenly become a bureaucracy. But that's that's the reality of the day. So it's important to to navigate these things. But you know the military is it's it is about leadership. It is about having a vision. But it's not unlike you know what, what we're doing at NATO. We you know we have a very clear vision. And and to me the vision was always I think the most important thing is is that you know that, that the mission of NATO is to defend freedom and preserve peace. And to me it's the most motivating thing that can happen. You can contribute to that. So. So again, from career-wise, I think I'm not trying to advise anything. I'm just sort of looking back in my career and and just sort of uh, you know uh, thinking about it. And it's like, okay, so it's about gaining those as many different experiences in different geographies, potentially. And this is what I've been able to 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 do, working in Asia, working in in Singapore, Japan, Australia, and then U.S. and Europe. It it gives good flavor and you know I think it really positions you in this world I hope it positions me well because I think it's ability to connect the dots how do you connect public sector with private sector with NGOs with uh, finance with military with intelligence with leadership with uh, with investments so it's a at the end of the day to solve these problems and you know you mentioned climate change as as a as a big challenge it's a transnational challenge and you know there's no well, they're, now they're probably climate change bachelor degrees and, and master's degrees in climate change now, but it's really there's no subject like that. It's, it requires a multidisciplinary approach, and I think the more networks, the more ecosystems we create around that with different kind of people, the, the better we're able to tackle that. Yeah, no, I mean, I couldn't agree more about sort of you know, we talk so much about in the corporate world uh, about diversity, and often yeah. I feel like sometimes you know. Uh, to its detriment, it's sort of limited to diversity that we can see, you know, diversity of race, of gender, of sexual orientation. Yeah. And those are all very important, but, you know, the diversity of just having different backgrounds and different experiences, often vastly different experiences, yeah. can I think really inform your work. And it's one of the things that we're trying to do is sort of democratize access to who gets into the political risk space, because historically it's always been, you know, someone who's had a very long career in the army or in intelligence or in government or in something and can use that kind of as a, you know, retirement career, almost political risk. Um, but I think bringing, you know, fresher, younger perspectives into that, bringing in, you know, people who've worked in anything from, you know, like you said, climate or banking or finance or uh, one of these sort of many other, uh, you know, careers bring something very unique to the table. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've wanted to ask you because you've had such a diverse career and one of the things we've discussed on the podcast many times before um, is something first uh, I interviewed uh, ambassador, former ambassador uh, Tom Fletcher. Uh, and he really spoke about the need uh, for, you know, bringing uh, these sort of different, you know, connecting the dots, uh, but particularly at sort of the international organization at the intergovernmental summit level. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's no doubt that, you know, the worlds of business and tech play increasingly powerful roles and increasingly influential roles in everyday life in politics. 
Um, so, you know, he really thinks that we need to have sort of better representation for them, uh, possibly in a more formalized way. And, you know, we've seen sort of the first inklings of that. We've seen, you know, Canada, for instance, now has a uh, official envoy representative to Silicon Valley, for instance. Um, and I'm wondering how, you know, you see that, uh, especially with your background, kind of, you know, playing into NATO. You know, would you say that business and tech firms deserve better diplomatic representation, such as the one held by NATO? Uh, what could that look like in practice? But perhaps more importantly, you know, things like these are you know, sort of set off alarm bells for lots of average people of you know, big tech and big government sort of interacting together. How do you assuage those fears? I know that's a lot to unpack, but I'd just love to get your take on that. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's uh, I, I cannot agree more. I think we need the, the more it comes down to diversity. I think so the more diverse we are, the better ideas we can probably generate. And those ideas are in a, in a knowledge-based organizations are essential. This is what we work on. Ideas is what we do. So if you, the more diverse, you know, people you have, the better it is. Now, speaking of um, kind of different people with different backgrounds, are they well accepted? Should they be more accepted here? Should we have more of them at NATO or and I'm just talking about NATO. I think UN, EU institutions is the same. It's, they probably will face uh, similar challenges. And I think, and this is where, you know, at least at NATO, and this is something we're actually we're thinking about and we've, we've done very concretely. So NATO just also at the Madrid summit, we launched, um, officially launched the, the so-called uh, Defense Innovation Accelerator from North Atlantic, so-called DIANA. It's a technology accelerator. Plus, uh, the, the, the 22 countries opted in to, as of now, to create and launch the, the NATO Innovation Fund, which is a, it's a 1 billion euro venture capital fund that will invest in dual technologies across, across the, the alliance. Um, and I think uh, I can tell you from the very, the very origins of this NATO Innovation Fund, which by definition assumes collaboration with technology companies because we need to invest with them. We need to collaborate with the, with the finance partners, other investors. Uh, same with Diana, Diana the, the accelerator. I think that's, it's about, you know, really being very business-like and, and connecting the militaries and the requirement setters at the ministries of defense with, the, with technology companies, with innovators across the alliance. And the original idea of the, of this, these two sort of, uh, um, these two institutions was, uh, I remember we, we brought it from Lithuania. We set it up also as a, like a small venture capital fund for to use defense money or to defense capital to, to invest in technologies. But the idea was, okay, we're, we want to make sure that NATO remains relevant in this world, which is it needs to be able to defend freedom and preserve peace in a, in a most you know, efficient way possible. To do that, we need military superiority. Military superiority is key for that is the key element of our power, of our ability to, to deliver on the mission. Now, military superiority cannot be there just like that if we don't, if the technology is behind. So we need to invest in technologies that eventually trickle into the military capabilities. So that was the idea behind the NATO Innovation Fund. And I think what we are is we, we're getting there, but even more so, I think there's a lot more, it's, it's a much bigger, softer side of this initiative is that we actually open up to the world that we are just were unaware before, such as an investment world, the, the investors, the startups, the technology developers, the, the even academia who produce the who work in these sort of research area. So it's a very very new for us. But 
as but for us also it's about leadership. We show that yeah, this is we are. We, we put the NATO flag in there, and um, and then we also encourage hopefully creation of other venture funds, other accelerators, other you know it's a billion euro fund that we have. It's not gonna you know it it can have impact, but it's not gonna be a you know a massive impact on capability very soon because to to build the military capability you need a lot more billions than, than just one billion. But the, the whole point is leadership, leadership showing the lead that we are there. And also as we set up that Diana Accelerator, which will be like a, partly like a new agency within NATO, we know that we need different kind of people there. We cannot have a simply a former ex-military there joining and, and, and doing the, we need, uh, we need the young, both younger and older, but also people with different backgrounds, business background, technology backgrounds, something that we, we, we had struggled before, I think, in attracting to the organization. Same with NATO, same with NATO Innovation Fund. I think it's, it's going to be a, more like a private entity with a, a arm's length from, uh, from, from NATO, but it's going to be run like a private business. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's a different kind of skills. You cannot just have a, a typical MOD or a Ministry of Finance or Ministry of Foreign Affairs bureaucrat you know, running these things. It's a, it's a collaboration. So we're, we're opening, we're trying to do these things, you know, to be more innovative, to make sure that we, you know, we're, we're attractive for, for the younger generation for, and attractive for not even the younger generation, but for anybody with a different background. And it's, it's, it's hard. It is hard. It's not easy because bureaucracies, as they set up, as they kind of become embedded into the rhythm of work that they're in, it's, it's very hard to change. But and that's what leadership is all about. And we just, you know, we're trying, trying, trying what we can to, 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 to get there. So it's a long winding answer to your question. I'm not sure even if I answered it, but it's a, uh, uh, the short is I agree. Yeah, no, they certainly did. And also very sort of good, you know, very practical, tangible kind of applications of it. You know, often I think when I speak to young people, the only thing they are often just, you know, disillusioned by, if at all, is uh, this perception that, uh, you know, whatever sort of big bureaucrats are doing is all words and never sort of really action. It's all SDGs and it's all high level summits, but it's not actually, you know, putting the money where their mouth is. And it seems like sort of NATO is making lots of sort of, you know, good steps in that direction. Uh, and that, that's very promising. Um, you know, we, we've spoken so much today about all sorts of things, scary things, many of them about, you know, Ukraine, about the southern flank, about China as a strategic challenge. Uh, so I always like to sort of, you know, end off on a more sort of optimistic note. Uh, what, what makes you optimistic about the future, about, you know, the world at large, not necessarily even just geopolitics? Uh, well, I, I think... Um... I think the most optimistic thing is, in, and you know, it's, um, you know, I view the world that is, you know, I think there's two big trends. There's geostrategic competition, which is can be viewed as a negative. Uh, there's a climate change. So two big things, climate change, geostrategic competition. I think it's, it's making us more polarized. Yes. It's making us more uncertain. Uh, I think what we see now, the, you know, you're in the UK, you know, with Heathrow Airport debacle, the, the, all these things, supply chains breaking, it sounds like everything's breaking, you know, on the verge of breaking, very, fra very fragile world where we live in. But I still think that, you know, as, as we move forward, there's a lot of optimism is in when you look at the, what's happening in the technological space, all these new innovations, new technologies, whether it's in biotech or it's in quantum computing or nuclear fu fusion. Yes, in Europe, you know, we, we're now we're with, with uh, 
quite scared a lot of people you know waiting for the, for the winter what's going to happen is going to be shortages of, of of heat of energy uh but i think all of that still i think it empowers us to look for new solutions and we have new generations of of, of researchers of people of students like you and others who who come to market and they have all these new ideas they think differently and i think there's a as long as we're able to connect the dots, because you know it's again, I probably said the third time we need to connect the dots in this in this conversation. But uh, we connect the dots if we are aware of what's happening. There's, there'll be a lot of opportunities. There'll be a lot of opportunities to make a difference. And uh, you know, I'm and I'm you know I'm I'm very I'm very positive that with technology, with the right people, with the right experiences, we can build. New organizations, we can rally people. We can rally even even in the in the polarizing sort of uh, autocracy versus democracy world. There's an opportunity to, to rally democratic capital and to make it all work for us to build that trust in our societies that that is lacking. That that COVID really, I think, has just completely wiped the the, the trust in our societies and it just really polarized uh, completely. The and the, and that kind of lack of trust. I think there's a there's things that you know we could we, we could do more, and I think yeah I'm I'm optimistic technology people and and ability to connect the dots. Assistant Secretary General, you think this is an incredibly fascinating discussion, one we're going to keep thinking about, uh, particularly as we think about you know connecting the dots in the various domains of our life, but also the world, uh, and as the situation in Ukraine evolves the next few weeks. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Manas. And to find out more about London Politica, visit our website, londonpolitica.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. And that's all for this episode. Stay tuned, and I'll see you next week.